5. Go ahead and start that if you have your um, own copy of Scripture with you. If not, we have those uh, black uh, pew Bibles there in the pew in front of you. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, um, to call yours at home. Um, Go ahead and grab one of those pew Bibles as our gift to you this morning. There is nothing, nothing that we would rather do than make sure that each and every person has access to the Word of God. We took last week off because last week was World Changers Sunday, but we have been in this four-part series in which we have been examining biblical freedom. We've been examining biblical freedom. And in particular, we've been holding it up and contrasting it to how we might use that word freedom in our culture around us. You know, we've, we've talked about how we use, we use freedom in all sorts of ways in our culture. It's used to sell us political candidates. It's used to sell us um, vacations. It's used to sell us adult beverages. It's used to sell us all sorts of things. Because freedom... I don't know how many of you have seen, there's a picture, it's been, it's been circulating for years, I don't even remember now where it originally came from, but it is ostensibly a, a young man standing in the face of a hurricane with an American flag in one hand and a shotgun in the other. I am fairly certain that it was taken in Florida, because if that does not perfectly sum up my home state, um, I don't know what does, if not taken in Florida, taken here in southwest North, southeast, excuse me, North Carolina. But you often see that picture with the subtitle on it, Freedom. Or, or, or better yet, sometimes, America. And so we have this idea, right, of, of freedom. We use that word a lot. We use it in all sorts of ways. I don't know how many of you remember being a little kid on the playground. I don't know, maybe this was just when I was a little kid, and you would tell someone you can't do something, and your, their response would be, yes, I can, it's a free country. We talk about freedom a lot, but, but the biblical use of freedom, what biblical freedom is, what freedom in Christ is, is not necessarily what freedom, the way the world tries to define it, is. And so the first week... Um, we looked at Romans 6, and actually we looked at what freedom isn't. And we said that freedom is not license to just simply do what we want or, or simply to pursue our own uh, pleasure. Uh, Paul actually starts Romans 6, Romans 6.1, and he says, you know, uh, shall I sin all the more so that grace can abound? And his, and his response to himself immediately, he's asking a rhetorical question there. And his immediate response from Paul is, absolutely not. And in the CSB, the translation that we use, that we have here in the Pew Bible, after not, there's actually an exclamation point. Now I want to be clear, that's not in the Greek. Greek doesn't have punctuation marks, which makes it slightly annoying, but also makes it wonderful for those of us that never quite learned the comma rules. But there is this idea sometimes in our culture that what freedom is is that freedom means I get to do what I want. That there's no limiting principle. There's, there's no regulation. There's no boundaries, no guardrails, no guidelines. Freedom is license to do anything. That's not what biblical freedom is. That's not what freedom in Christ looks like. Uh, week two, the second week that we did this, which was actually two weeks ago now, we actually backed up a chapter and we were in Romans 5 and we sort of looked at what, okay, if freedom isn't 
license. If freedom isn't this ability to do whatever we want, free of any concerns, what is freedom? And what we came up with there in Romans 5 is that freedom means freedom from condemnation under the law. Freedom means being set free from the slavery, being enslaved to sin and death. And that this freedom and this grace that we receive actually brings us peace with God. And so this week we're actually going to, as I said, we're going to another one of Paul's letters. So the Paul's letter to the Romans was written to the church in Rome. Paul's letter to the Galatians was written to the churches in the region that was known as Galatia, which is found in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to a series of churches and, and writing about some conflict that they are having. They're having some serious theological conflict in the church in Galatia. Because they're trying to figure out what freedom is. They're trying to figure out what the gospel is. They're trying to figure out whether or not they should still be following the law or whether they're free from the law, whether they are, whether they are, are bound by these Judaic codes or free from them. And some of them even pushing it so far as to say they are free to do whatever they want. And so that is what Paul is writing to here in the book of Galatians. So we are in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read the first verse, and then we're going to skip down to verse 13. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Dropping down now to verse 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, as we turn to your word this morning, as we turn to this time of, of, of study and discernment on what your word has for us, God, I just pray that we would that we would experience the freedom that you have promised us, that, you would that, we would, that we would feel that freedom, but that we would not exercise that freedom poorly. God, I would pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Galatians is one of, if not my favorite book. In fact, I'm actually preparing. I think after the new year, we may end up spending a great deal of time in Galatians together. I'm, I'm working on the possibility of actually preaching through the book of Galatians after the beginning of the year. It's this, it's this wonderful Wonderful book. And like I said, it's a letter that Paul writes to, to a, a group of churches there in what was then Asia Minor, what we now think of as 
Turkey. It would almost be as if we received a letter from Paul today to the churches of the Robinson Baptist Association. So these are churches, they were geographically close to each other, and so because of that they were tied to each other, and they had influence on one another, and they were experiencing this theological conflict. This is early, early, early in the history of the church. The church is still trying to work out some of these things, and in case, in case sometimes we don't think about this, they didn't have the New Testament to look to. Because it was being written. They didn't have the book of Galatians to look to and work through this stuff until Paul wrote it to them and it showed up in the, well, I guess they didn't have mailboxes, but showed up in the post. Brought to them over Roman roads. Galatians is such a wonderful book. And this this first verse, this first verse of chapter 5 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We just had a baby. He's a little over a month old. We named him Stacia James McNeese. Now, while James is a family name on Audrey's side, there are some folks who have that name. It's not a family name on my side. And where... Where I got James from, primarily, was a man who was a mentor to me named James Dunn. Some of you may have known James Dunn. Some of you may remember that name. James Dunn, for years and years, was the head of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. He liked to joke that he beat Ronald Reagan to D.C. by about six months, and he outlasted him by about 12 years. So he was there for almost 20 years in D.C. leading this organization, and and I got to know him when I lived in Winston-Salem. And James Dunn taught me a lot. One of the things that James Dunn taught me to do was how to tie a bow tie, which was an essential, at least in his book, an essential skill for a Baptist minister to have. One of the other things that James Dunn taught me was if you preach and do not give people an opportunity to respond, you have no business calling yourself a Baptist preacher. And the third major gift that I got from James Dunn was a love for this verse. Every time James Dunn would sign a letter, sign off on an email, write a note at the bottom of a paper that you had turned into him, he would write, J. Dunn, G-A-L, 5-1. You know, for years, I don't know if people still talk about this, I haven't heard this language in a long time, but in, I remember when I was growing up, we, people would talk about life verses, a, of one verse of Scripture that sort of summed up at least in a stage in their life, where their faith was. And I think we could say that Galatians 5.1 was James Dunn's life verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Let us never again submit to a yoke of slavery. This is a, it's a transition verse. These verses happen often in, in Paul's letters. Because we have to remember, there, there weren't chapter and verse headings 
uh, and markers and delineations when Paul wrote a letter. And so just as you and I, when writing a letter or writing an email, because I don't know how many of us write letters anymore, but we, will, we use these transitional phrases, right? And so Paul does this a lot, and this is one of those. So what he's doing is he's summing up everything that's come before, certainly summing up um, um, the contents of what is now chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, but I think you could even make the argument that he's really sort of summing up right here chap- what we have as chapters 3 and 4. Summing up what freedom is, and that it's because of freedom that Christ set us free. But it's also an introduction in what Paul is about to bring us. So it's a, it's a summation of what has come before and an introduction to what's coming ahead. In fact, the rest of chapter 5 is Paul sort of working out what exactly this freedom looks like. And so, just as this verse is trying to do two things, it's trying to sum up what's come before and trying to announce what's coming ahead, the verse is, has sort of two parts to it. The, the first part of the verse is, in Greek, what we would call the indicative mood. How many of you know biblical Greek? Yep, no hands. Okay, so, so none of you know what the indicative mood is. The, the second part of the verse is what we call the imperative mood. Now, what this means is the first part of the verse is Paul giving us a fact. He's indicating something. He's giving us a fact. For freedom, Christ has set you free. The imperative mood is Paul telling us to do something. Stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So this verse is, is doing two things. It's, it's giving us, it's giving us a, a statement of fact followed by a command. And what Paul is saying is because of this fact, you are free because Christ has set you free. You are to follow this command. So why did Christ set us free? It's going to be one of those, those, those answers that includes the question in it. Why did Christ set us free? So that we can be free. There wasn't an ulterior motive here. Christ didn't set us free because He got something out of it. Christ didn't set us free because you know, there was a good deal on manumitting people from sin and death. Christ didn't set us free because He got a, a laurel in His cap. Christ set us free so that we can be free. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. See, in order to serve the living God, in order to be His people, we have to be free. We have to be free from the bondage to sin and death. You can't serve a the living God if you are enslaved to death and to systems of death and to sin. In order for us to serve God. In order for us to be free to serve God, we have to be free. 
That seems a little redundant, doesn't it? But this is what Paul is telling us. Tony Evans uh, puts it this way. He says, it, it's our, our, our freedom our, our freedom, and how we respond to it. It's a, it's a living thank you. It's living a thank you life and a want to life rather than a have to life. It's living a thank you life and a want to life rather than a have to life. See, those first two, a, a thank you life, a, a, a want to life, that's a, that's a life of relationship. Right? When you, when you do something for, for someone because you want to, it's because you care for them. Because you, you want to do something nice for them. We have been on the receiving end of a lot of that over the last couple of months. And it's because the people who have blessed us and who have gifted to us and who have loved us want to. They get to. That's, that's relationship. When we, when we think that we have to live a certain way, when we think we have to live a have-to life, that's not a life of relationship. That's a life of obligation. You know, how we talk to ourselves around these things are really important. How many of you have ever gotten up in the morning on Sunday morning and said, I have to go to church? I'll own it. I have to go to church. What if we got up on Sunday morning and said, I get to go to church. I want to go to church. Do we begin to see how these are different? We begin to think about maybe even how we talk to ourselves and the language we use with ourselves can influence how we think about God and how we think about our relationship with Him. I have to go to church means that we have an obligation. I get to go to church. I want to go to church indicates that we have a relationship with the living God that we want to live into and be a part of. We've talked about this. Relationships are two-way streets, aren't they? A relationship that is unidirectional, only in moving in one direction. That's not much of a relationship, is it? Relationships are give and take. We're called to have relationships with God. Because, because freedom allows us to live a thank you life, a want to life, and not a life of obligation. See, when, when, we are, when, we are, when we are slaves to, to sin and to the law, when we're trying to justify ourselves with our good works and our own deeds, when, when we're seeking to prove that we are worthy, we are unable to live the life of freedom that God has given to us and that God desires for us. It's only in freedom 
It's only once we've been set free from sin that we're able to pursue God's design and God's purpose for us and indeed for all of creation. Now, again, I'm not saying this is freedom to do what we want. In fact, the gift of freedom should stir up in us a desire because of this relationship to pursue God's design. It should, it should mean that because, because we love God and because we're in relationship with Him, we seek to make Him happy. Not because we have an obligation to, but because we want to. And this can be hard. This can be a distinction that seems difficult. Freedom is both the means and the ends to the Christian life. It's both the means and the ends. Christ freed us. That's the means. So that we can be free. That's the ends. This is a mirror of the work that God did in the life of the Israelites in the Exodus. I know he's really cute. He's distracting me too. Up here. This, this freedom, that, this gift of freedom that we've been given, it, it, it's a mirror of the freedom and, and what happens for, for God does for the, for the Israelites in the Exodus. The Israelites are, are enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved. They're, they're mistreated. The Pharaoh uh, pursues a campaign of, of genocide against them. So what does God do for them? God frees them. God frees them so they can be free. So that they can be free to worship Him. So that they can be free to serve Him. So that they can be free to fulfill the element of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That they could be a blessing to the whole world. As long as the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, they were not free to be who God had called them, designed them, made them, covenanted with them to be. And it's the same for us. Until we are free, we cannot be who God has made us to be. God has freed us from slavery, not to Pharaoh, but to sin. God has freed us so that we are are free to pursue Him, serve Him, worship Him, so that we're free to build and establish the kingdom and free to be a part of God's divine plan to bring redemption and restoration to creation. The covenant that was given to Abraham through you, I will bless all nations, is a covenant that continues through and applies to us. It is through us, God's church, God's people, that He seeks to bless the nations, that He seeks restoration reconciliation and redemption for the world. We are a part of God's divine plan, but we cannot take our part in that plan until we are free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Submit never again. 
to the yoke of slavery. Don't allow yourself to fall back into slavery once God has freed you. So, okay. So it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We see what that means. We understand maybe what, what, what standing firm means. But, but, but what about that, that second part? What about those, those, that second set of verses that we read today? For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but to serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. See, see Paul tells us that we're called to be free. Calling is, a, calling is an expression that I, that I think we've lost. He's lost a little bit of his oomph. We think these days that, that if someone's called by God, that means you're either called to be a, a pastor or called to be a missionary. That's what calling is, right? But all followers of Christ are called. Well, all followers of Christ are, are called to follow Him, called to be a disciple, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in the image of the Master. All disciples are called to make disciples. All disciples are, 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 have a call on us. And this call in our lives shows up in different ways. We can be called to be a teacher. We can be called to be a mechanic. We can be called to be a probation officer. We can call, be called to be a, a farmer or a librarian. We can be called to do all sorts of things because all things are under Christ and all things, you know, that aren't sinful can and should be done to the glory of God. As a, as a believer, as a follower, you're called. You're called to, to grow in Christ's likeness, but you're also called in, in those everyday things that you do to do them to the glory of God. How about this? Buy groceries to the glory of God. What does that look like? I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I think it would affect the decisions that we make, right? The things that we put in our, in our, in our grocery cart. I think it would affect the, the way we interact with the people in the grocery store while we're in there. It would affect the way we interact with, with the cashier while, while we're there. It, it might even affect whether or not we leave the grocery cart in the middle of the parking lot or put it up where it's supposed to go. Which is, by the way, the number one sign of the collapse of Western civilization that people cannot put their grocery carts up. Buy groceries to the glory of God. Bob, farm to the glory of God. Ronnie, deliver mail to the glory of God. Rick, Teach to the glory of God. 
because of our freedom, you can do that. Because we've been set free, because we've been called to freedom, we can do things to the glory of God. Because we can pursue God's plan. We're called to freedom so that we can do things to God's glory, not so that we can indulge in the flesh. Now, I think sometimes when we see this and we see the word flesh, we think about like certain kinds of things. I think sometimes when when we see Paul talking about don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, we think about some things that maybe are physically satisfying to us. Overindulgence in food, overindulgence in drink, perhaps overindulgence in our sexuality. But there are all sorts of things that are of the flesh, according to Paul. Don't get, use your freedom to get angry at people. Don't use your freedom, Carter, to sit in the food lion parking lot and think, these savages unable to put up their grocery car baskets. I huff and puff and put out all the baskets in the grocery parking lot. That's indulging my flesh. Allowing that anger to well up inside of me and, and to at least for a moment in some small way take charge. That's being in my flesh. See, God has given us this beautiful thing. God gives us lots of beautiful things. And we can find a way to take beautiful things that God has given us and twist them and pervert them and misuse them. And the freedom that God has given us is no different. We can use it as a pretext to throw off all moral restraints and indulge in all sorts of fleshly and worldly desires. But that is not the freedom that Christ has given us. The freedom that Christ has given us is that that freedom to pursue God's design I'm going to miss Frank. One of the things that I'm going to miss about Frank is I'm going to miss being having the opportunity to go and sit and talk with somebody who understands the game of football better than any person I've ever met. And Frank would be the first person to tell you that the way that two teams can go out and play a game of football, the way they can go out and be free to play football is if there are rules. Say the kickoff happens and the receiver receives the ball and runs out of the stadium and runs around behind the stands and comes back in from the other side and runs into the end zone and says, oh, now I've scored a touchdown. My job is to get the ball into the end zone and I did it however I wanted to. Is he playing the game of football?
Say a batter refused to leave home plate after he had swung and missed the ball for the third time. And he goes, no, I'm just, my job's to hit the ball and I'm going to stay here until I hit the ball. Is he playing baseball? Any of y'all remember the, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes? I love Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin and Hobbes, in case you don't remember, Calvin was a little boy and Hobbes was his pet tiger who when mom and dad and adults were around looked like a stuffed animal, but when it was just Calvin was an actual tiger. They would play this game called Calvin Ball. And the rules of Calvin Ball were whatever Calvin said they were. But that wasn't a game that other people could play. No one was free, not even Hobbes, free to play Calvin Ball with Calvin. So if, if, if we don't use our freedom for whatever we want, if that's not how we pursue God's design, how do we do that? It's the second part of this verse. Love one, serve one another through love. But serve one another through love. Biblical love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the ultimate expressions of God's love. Jesus served us. He set us free, free through an act of love. His sacrificial death on the cross. But just as Christ served us, we are called to serve others in and through love. Paul is addressing all of this to these Galatians that are being tempted once again to submit themselves to the law and ultimately to sin. To, to submit themselves again to that yoke of slavery. And so he reminds them, he's like, okay, okay, you want to follow the law. You think the law is good. The law is good. But remember what Christ told us. All of the law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. What happens when we choose to love our neighbor? We seek their, their well-being. We seek their benefit. We make decisions that put them first and not ourselves first. We, we think about what their needs and wants and desires are instead of our own. Maybe loving our neighbor as ourself is seeing that the neighbors next door who are going through a hard time need their lawn mowed and just mowing it. Maybe loving your neighbor as yourself is noticing that the single mom who lives down the street is frazzled and worn out and is offering to take those three little hellions off her hands just for an afternoon so that she can get some stuff done. Maybe loving your neighbor is removing things in your life that would be a temptation to your neighbor. Maybe loving your neighbor as yourself is, is making sure that when you're brother dealing with addiction comes over to the house that there's nothing 
in the house that would seek to cause him to stumble. Maybe as a church, loving our neighbor as ourself is, is thinking not what's important to us, not thinking how do we want to do things, but thinking about how our neighbors need to see us be, to see God in what we do. You see, we can choose to love our neighbors or we can choose to continue to love ourselves. And what happens? Paul tells us right here what happens when we choose self-love over neighbor love. When we choose self-love over neighbor love, we will bite and devour one another. We will be consumed by one another. This is what was happening in the, in the church in Galatia. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were turning inward on themselves. They were consumed by a love for themselves and not for each other. Y'all ever, y'all ever boil crabs? You boil crabs, this thing will happen where the crabs that are up toward the surface will, will want to get out of that water. And they'll, they'll seek to, to get themselves out. And what will happen? The crabs that are below them will grab them and pull them back into that boiling water. Because they're trying to get out. Because they don't have a love for their, for their brother crab who's trying to get out of the boiling water. They have a love for themselves to get out of that boiling water. And what happens? All the crabs get boiled. When we place ourselves first, when we, when we love ourselves we place self-love over neighbor love. We have a tendency of doing this. We can pull each other down into the boiling water. Have you all ever seen a, a ball of ants in the, in the rain? Have you all ever seen this happen? An ant colony gets flooded. There's a flood going on and, and you'll see a ball of ants. And what the ants do is they make this ball. And yeah, some of the ants on the outside of that ball will end up dying. But most of the colony is saved. Because the ants aren't in a hurry to save themselves. They're in a hurry to save each other. God has set us free for us to pursue Him and pursue His design. God has set us free so that we can have the ability to love one another. God has set us free. God has set us free. Why would we ever submit to the yoke of slavery again? Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 317, Only Trust Him. 317, Only Trust Him. Brothers and sisters, if you desire this morning to experience this freedom, to, to experience the freedom that is your gift from God to pursue Him, to pursue His design, to love your neighbor, to be free of that backbiting, 
self-destructiveness. This is an opportunity to respond. Will you stand with me as we sing?